Well, it's wonderful to gather and to worship our great God this morning, and I just loved hearing the theme of God's mighty power uh, throughout our worship this morning, and fitting for uh, even what we're going to be discussing today, but to think about God's mighty power, right, in the works that He's made in His creation, and then to think about His mighty power to, to save us from our sin, and then even as we sang and how that last song ended, right, that mighty God who has the power to even usher in a, a new creation through the reign uh, of Christ, and uh, to be able to inherit a new creation with Him, uh, what a, a joyful blessing. And we need to be reminded of our God's mighty power, especially in the Christmas season where he showed that power, especially in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, uh, for us. Well, we have the, the privilege over the holidays that we actually get to take our kids to, to grandma's house, who happens to live over the river, the Wildcat Creek River, that is, and through the woods uh, nearby Clare Gardens. And we go to grandma's house and, uh, you know, on the way to grandma's house, uh, one of the things that uh, I saw as I was going through the woods is you saw this giant elm tree that had fallen uh, because of just some of the wind recently. But uh, you may have seen a, a giant tree fall before, but where you see the, the entire root structure of the tree like exposed and out of the ground. I mean, it's just something amazing to behold. Uh, but, but again, to imagine something so massive uh, following, falling with, with just a little bit of uh, wind. You know, and as I thought about that, that tree, it just reminded me again of that's really one of the ways that trials function in our life. Windy times, difficult seasons of our life really reveal the strength of our roots and where we are grounded. And uh, as you think about a time in your life where you are incredibly anxious, incredibly fearful, right? God was using those particular trials and circumstances in your life to really reveal where are you rooted for what you think is strong, what you think is mighty, what you think has the power to help you in those moments. And to, to think about some of our dear brothers and sisters as Ross was praying this morning, uh, I, I mean, the, the reality, the loss of a husband at such a young age to cancer, the, the loss of a child after three days, what are you going to do to find strength when, when things that we often think are, are most precious and wonderful gifts of the Lord, when even those things we see aren't strong enough to deliver from things like death, right? And this is where we get back to our mighty God. See, our security, like our work, right? My health, my family, even our government, right? Things that we often think are the mightiest things, the most precious, the most secure things. God wants us to see there's something better. There's someone better. And so what did the Bible say to the people of Israel? What did they need to trust? What did their heart need to believe when even at their time, the most powerful person in their nation, their own king, when his heart was trembling, the text says, like trees trembling in the wind, God said they needed to understand that there's a mighty God that they needed to trust. And with that in your mind, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. That's page 492 in the front section of the Bible in the chair in front of you. Isaiah chapter 9, page 492. You know, each year as we think about uh, Christmas season, we look at different parts of the Bible story about Christmas. Sometimes we focus on the birth narratives particularly or individuals responding to the birth of Christ. And what we decided this year in our preaching series is to focus especially on the different prophecies related to Jesus' birth, but really focusing on Isaiah chapter 9. And our Christmas series is Light of the World, and it's really focused on Jesus being revealed to be the promised Savior and mighty God. And in Isaiah chapter 9, there's four descriptions of the Messiah, four descriptions of who is the promised King who would save humanity from their sin. 
And we saw last week, Pastor Nitschke reminded us, one of those descriptions was wonderful counselor. And the second, which I'm going to focus on today, mighty God. And then in the next upcoming weeks, we're going to be looking at that description of everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And this goal of our series, again, is in line with our overall series for our goal for the year, is really to think about the aspect of hope, that this should give us hope for our daily life. And the context is very revealing for Isaiah chapter 9. This was meant as a message of hope in a time of great turmoil, great uncertainty for God's people and the nation of Israel. And so before we get into the text this morning, I just want to provide a bigger picture of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and prophets in general. Um, I find, you may agree with me in this, I think the prophets are probably the most difficult section of the Bible to read and to understand. There's times where you'll read through a chapter, read over a verse, and you go, I have no idea what that's saying. And, and so when you find yourself in that, don't, don't be discouraged. I, as your pastor, sometimes feel that way too. And, and so what helps me as I read a God's Word, and especially the prophetic literature, is to keep in mind the big picture of what is the role of the prophets. What are they doing? What, why are they writing? And, and so people like Isaiah, right, God is writing to a people at a time where the people are not being faithful to God. And so they're breaking their covenant. They're not being loyal in their commitments and they're worshiping other gods and they're not listening to God's word and his commands. And so God would send messengers, prophets like Isaiah, and for three basic purposes. First, to confront the nation's sin and to tell them there's gonna be consequences for you not following the Lord. And so you're gonna see that even in our text today. It's surrounded by the context of consequences for the nation of Israel is where this hope is given. But there's a command for them to to repent, to turn away from the way they've been living, contrary to God's word, and live for the Lord and faithfully keep his word. And and then he's going to call them to faithfulness, and the prophets are then going to teach and instruct, this is what it looks like to follow the Lord in this situation, if you want to honor the Lord with your life. And so when I'm reading Isaiah or any prophet, I'm sort of getting lost in the details. It's helpful to just zoom back out and think, okay, how do I see these bigger themes happening? And then, again, Isaiah is one of the longer prophets, 66 chapters. And so as you're reading through, just to understand, this is a lot of text, but this is the main point. The prophets also had a very difficult job, meaning when you understand that the majority of the people are not wanting to follow God, and your message is, hey, consequences are coming, you're not going to be particularly liked by most people. And most people don't want to hear the prophet's message. And so many times the prophets were persecuted, they were mistreated, they were beaten, and sometimes even killed. And so it was a very difficult job to be a prophet. And that's where, again, this message of hope is meaningful for anybody who wants to follow the Lord to understand we're going to need hope to fulfill our calling in a way that the Lord wants us to and not be discouraged. But amid the confrontation, there's also all of these aspects of hope. And especially the prophecies often relate to sort of three general time periods in the prophets that are filled with hope. First is the restoration to the nation, to the land. So like in Isaiah's time, there's going to be consequences that's coming to the nation of Israel. And then there's hope of in the near future, even though there's going to be some temporary consequences, God's going to bring the people back to the land of Israel, even though for a time they're going to be away from the land. So there's times in the prophets where the hope that's being given is referring to that time period. And then there's times where it's referring to especially what's going to happen and the hope that's going to come when the Messiah, that's Jesus Christ, when he comes to this earth in his birth. And there's hope filled with that. And then there's also times in the prophets where it's even further referring to Jesus' second coming and what he's going to do with the millennial kingdom and then what he's going to do with the new creation. 
And, and so what the challenging part is when you're reading some of the prophets, in one section of the prophets, you could find all three of these horizons of time in one text. Sometimes you find one, sometimes you find two together. And so it becomes difficult sometimes to go, when, when is this happening? When is that happening? And so to keep sort of these kind of three main time horizons in your mind as you're reading, I think helps you to locate, okay, when is that? When is that? When is that? But the whole point is there's lots of hope that God is giving to his people. And, and so I'm pr- really glad that as we think about the Christmas series in Isaiah 9, that this is really to give us incredible hope. And, and so, again, this message of hope is really taking place in Isaiah 1 through 39, which is broadly speaking, most of the chapters 1 through 39 are messages of consequences and destruction because of how the people are living. And yet you have these sections in Isaiah, like Isaiah 9, that are filled with hope amidst those consequences. So please follow along as I read in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. Again, this is given about 700 years before the birth of Christ, looking forward with hope to the coming of his day. And as I read, I'm just going to pause and just make a few notes just to explain a few things of the the passage as we go along, and and then we'll we'll kind of continue as we go. This is the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for who who was in anguish, In earlier times, he, that's the Lord, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so God is saying that this land, these northern areas of north of Jerusalem, these are the areas that are often first conquered and occupied by foreign nations as they come down to fight with Israel. And so these lands are going to be judged. They're going to experience consequences from the Lord, right? Assyria and other nations are going to come down and conquer these areas. And these areas often were filled with Gentiles because these foreign nations would first come down to these places to conquer this area of Galilee. And so God is saying this message of hope is going to come from this area. And it's going to include Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish. And so then we kind of go, well, how is this going to happen? How is this hope going to come? Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will will shine on them. And so this hope is going to bring life-giving. The presence of the Lord is going to be with them. It's going to be life-giving, those who are in the valley of death. Verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. So God's going to be with them. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So there's this picture of God's power is coming. God's saving work is coming. And it's going to bring fullness of joy for the people. They're going to see it as God's presence comes with his people. And what is he going to do? Verse 4, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, right? These oppressors you're going to lift for every boot of the brooded warrior in the battle of Tamo and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire, meaning his victory, his, what he's going to do to deliver is so great, there's no need for war anymore. There's no need for these things that are associated with battle. He's bringing a type of ultimate peace. And then verse six, for how is this going to happen? How is this might going to be shown? How is God going to deliver? How is God going to rescue? And this is what's so surprising. A child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called this child. Wonderful Counselor. 
Mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. And so in our time together as we focus on God being the, the mighty God, we're going to look at four principles necessary to understand and benefit from God's power in our life. Is, is first that God predicted that the Messiah would be the mighty God, that the promised chosen king and human king for Israel from the line of David was in fact God himself. That's why he's able to reign forever. That's why he's able to accomplish all of these purposes. That's why he's able to rescue and deliver and bring a type of peace that nobody could imagine because he is God in the flesh. And so think for a moment, if someone came and entered the church this morning proclaiming to be God, we would think that that person is crazy. And so as we think about, well, what would it be like for these people also to see this human man named Jesus? And he's just claiming to be God. The natural question that everybody's asking is, prove it. Prove it. How would you? I mean, what I see is just a human being before my eyes. And it's prophecies like this, like in Isaiah 9, that God is giving to us so that when we see the human Jesus born of a virgin and we start to see his works, we would immediately go, this isn't just a human. Yes, he's fully man, but he's also fully God. He is, in fact, the creator of the heavens and the earth now dwelt among us. And there's the expectation, again, that God wants us to have that the Messiah is both fully human, he's born, he's a child given, and yet also a very clear explanation, he's not just that. He is, in fact, the mighty God. And so when you look at Jesus, and if you just see him as a really good man and a really good teacher, you miss the whole point that God is telling you from Isaiah 9 for what you should be hopeful about his coming. He's more than man. He is our mighty God and Savior. And so let's look at the way that this word mighty is used at times. It can be used in the sense of like outstanding bravery, like when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And so that word champion refers to the idea of he's the mighty one. It can be at times also describing uncommon faithfulness, so mighty in loyalty, mighty in faithfulness. And that's what we see like in First Chronicles 29, 24, where David's sort of mighty men show their mighty in the fact that they submit themselves to King Solomon in loyalty to him. And so uncommon faithfulness, the character of somebody, is, can also be shown in their might. Uh, heroic power is another common way this phrase is used, like angels who can just do things that no human being can do. But then the term is even described and attributed to the Lord, like we see in Isaiah 9 or Psalm 89, 8, that the Lord God Almighty, who is likely, you're mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. So again, might and faithfulness are often related to God very similarly in the Bible. But then also vast justice your arm is endued with power. Your hand is strong, right? Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And so you start to see in the scriptures God's might and power closely related to his wisdom and other attributes that describe who God is. And this is just who the nature of God uh, for example, one dictionary mentions this point that God's power is inextricably linked to things like righteousness, goodness, justice, steadfast love, and faithfulness. 
Whereas human beings, our power, our might is not often associated in these ways. And instead, we often use our power, like Jeremiah says, we use our power unjustly, where God's power and his authority is always shown in loyal love, in goodness, in wisdom, in all the attributes of God uh, toward his people. But as we mentioned, this, these, these names, these titles that we, we see in Isaiah 9, they're not random. God has them there to give hope to his people at this specific time based on what the circumstances are happening for us to see the character of our God. Things like his wise understanding. Like Job says, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding. So the idea that God knows all things and then his power directs all things toward his plans and purposes are closely associated. And so when Isaiah writes that the coming Messiah would be the mighty God, it's an incredible message of hope that would be associated with ideas like this. And so what's the significance for for our lives? As we think about the the Messiah, as Jesus being born, we're to understand these attributes of God are being put on full display in and through his life on earth. And so that helps us to have the the lens as I look at Jesus, all of these aspects of his goodness, his power, his might are being displayed perfectly through the man, Jesus Christ. And it gives us incredible hope and understanding for how radical then, why is it that Jesus is born of a virgin? Like I've never heard that before. Well, because the mighty God is at work to bring that about. Why is Jesus able to do these things and know these things? Well, it's because he is in fact the mighty God. He's not just a baby born in a manger. There's more to that. And so again, this is what helps us to then trust the prophecies that God's word gives. And so the peoples of Isaiah's day also needed to to hear this message. So I mentioned um, briefly that the the hope of these titles that are given occur in a context. And so if you look even over in chapter 8, you see, for example, the context of some of the consequences that are coming to the people. And the temptation for some of the people is to, for example, lean on other counselors and other wisdom and soothsayers, right, who are going to say, no, no, bad things are not coming for your sin. Listen to our message and listen to our counsel. And God says, I'm going to thwart that counsel. I'm going to stop that counsel. My counsel will stand, right? So he is the wonderful counselor. And in this time, too, Israel is especially looking to other nations and other kings and their might for power. And God is going to remind the nation of Israel, well, who is, in fact, really mighty and who is, in fact, really powerful? So the unique temptations that the people have in their context and circumstances, God is reminding them of who God is to help fight these temptations and circumstances. So I I want to discuss a little bit about why Isaiah needed this message. So chapter 7 through 9 describe events surrounding the King Ahaz of Assyria, uh, King Ahaz in 5, 735 BC. This is when the Assyrian armies in about 10 years in 722 are going to come down and they're going to conquer the northern kingdoms of Israel and they're going to come all the way down even into southern kingdom, but they're not going to overcome it and eventually they're going to be turned back. But eventually God's going to bring the Babylonians even to take the southern kingdom and almost 200 years later in 586. And so at this point, Again, Israel is divided as a nation. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is ministering to the southern kingdom at this time. When he is delivering this message, he's ministering to King Ahaz, who's in the southern kingdom. And so again, King Ahaz is right now in a very pressure-filled situation where there are two enemy nations right on his borders that have now made a military alliance with the northern kingdom. 
And they're now playing pressure and they're planning to come down and even invade if Ahaz doesn't give in to their requests. And so Ahaz is put in a difficult position. Do I make an alliance with these nations? Right? Or, and, or, and do I fear these kingdoms that are right around me? And again, it's hard for us as Americans, for those of us who are here or in the U.S. right now, to really understand just this feeling of being nearby with more powerful nations than you right on your doorstep right next to you, right? I mean, we're surrounded by water on both sides, making land evasion very difficult. We've always had pretty good relations with Canada and Mexico recently. We're usually not thinking invasion is coming from our southern and northern borders. And yet Israel is surrounded by the threat of being invaded, And so, again, just imagine what it would be like as King Ahaz is out there checking out to make sure they have enough water for the city because these kings are coming, and Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, don't worry about these kingdoms and these nations right next to you. He's like, what do you mean? I see them. They're literally not that far. We're talking miles here from them coming into our land. And God is going to tell Ahaz, don't fear. Don't, don't fear what they're saying. And so God is going to push Ahaz to see what are you going to trust? Where are you going to find security in your life? What do you think is most mighty? And so God's word to Ahaz was to not fear these two kings, but believe in the mighty God. And we see this in the king's choice. He says to him, take care, be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Basically saying these little kings, these kings are like wicks of a candle that are just about to go out where you just kind of blow it and they're gone. That's how I want you to think about these kings. So imagine, again, you're putting yourself in King Ahaz's shoes as you look at nations and armies around you and God is saying they're just like wicks of a firebrand. Don't fear them. Trust in my might and my power. But he says, if you don't, if you don't believe, if you're not going to rely on me and trust, you will surely not last. And so God wanted to give Ahaz and his people hope and confidence. And so God says, this is how powerful I am. Don't fear. Don't worry about these other kings. And he says, just to prove how powerful and strong I am, I want you to ask me for a sign. Think of the greatest power, the greatest sign, the greatest demonstration of might that you can think of, King Ahaz, and I'll do it. I'll show you. I'll reveal my power. And Ahaz, though, has already in his heart decided to trust in the Syria. And so he responds, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I'm not going to ask for a sign. And, and so that's why the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord. Right? Make it as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven, the greatest sign you can think of. But Ahaz refused to believe. And he says, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test because he really wanted to rely on the might and the king of Assyria. And so the Lord was faithful where he says, well, even if you're not going to ask for the sign, I'm going to give you one. I'm going to show my might. I'm going to show my power. I'm going to show you the greatest demonstration of my might that I can give. And here's the sign. The Lord himself will give a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. See, Ahaz chose to trust in his own wisdom and his own ability to get out of the jam, looking and leaning upon the nations and the power of men. And even if he had to compromise everything on what he believed, and it's like God warned through the prophet Jeremiah, though, over and over, the Lord is looking for people who are not going to trust in just boasting in wise men or wisdom or the strength of his power or riches. He says, instead, 
What is he looking for? One that understands. One that knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For these I delight. And so the Lord describes in other places what he wants. Right, Those who delight and fear him, who put their hope in God's unfailing love. Right? And so that's what God is using trials in each of our lives to really press us to that point of, as you think about your health, as you think about family difficulties and relationships, these things that cause us to be incredibly anxious, that cause our hearts to shake and to fear, what are you relying on is really the strength and source of your power and security. And God is saying it has to be the Lord and the Lord alone. And he is purposing all of these trials in our life to help us to see the hope and confidence that we need to have in him and his might. This is the hope of our salvation. And this would help, again, all of God's people to trust in the Lord and have hope for his promises. See, God purposed the consequences for an important point. We see this point led in chapter 10, just following these verses. So after all these consequences come, after the people experience the consequences for their sin, and as God judges them and the nations come in and take the people away, God says, what's the purpose? Why would I allow all this to happen? Why would I allow those windy, shaking trials to bring difficulty to your life? In that day, so that the remnant, those who are faithful to God, will return. And and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. What is God saying? So my people would learn not to rely on the king of Assyria. The very king that they said would deliver and save them is the very king that I use to humble them and to strike them with consequences. Right? And so to think in terms of when I rely on something else other than the Lord, God often is going to use that to bring consequences from that very thing. I rely on wealth, and I start to see wealth is going to bring consequences when I see that it is not powerful enough to deliver or save. Health will have consequences in my life, and God will show it is not able to deliver or save. And over and over and over, God is trying to teach us not to rely on these things. And the same would be true for Isaiah. Why did he need this message of hope? Well, how, how would this impact Isaiah's own life and ministry, knowing that the Messiah was coming, that the governance of God was eventually going to be established, that all these promises for God's people, he would continue to show hope and unfailing love? As a prophet, he needed to hear that encouragement and hope. As you think about, again, his own life, if you turn over to chapter 6 for a moment, you see Isaiah's call and his commissioning. And it describes how Isaiah comes into the presence of the mighty God and he goes, I'm unclean, I'm not worthy, I'm a sinner. What can save me? And God then gives them the sign to show that he's going to purify and he's going to cleanse Isaiah. And it's by his power he does this. And then he says, I I want you, Isaiah, to be my messenger. Are you going to go forth? And Isaiah says, yes, send me, Lord. And what's the mission? You're going to go and you're going to speak this message, this message to call the people to repent. And the reality, though, is as you share the message, they're not going to listen. They're not going to see. They're not going to obey. They're not going to turn back. And he goes, well, how long, O Lord? And he goes, until basically the nation lies in ruins. And all that is left is a stump of hope, a holy seed. And what is the stump of hope? What is the, the holy seed? It's this promise of God's faithfulness through this child that's going to be born from the line of David, a branch, a shoot out of Jesse will remain. That's their hope. And you go, wow, that's a really hard message. 
I'm going to spend my life preaching to a people who I'm going to see all the consequences of their sin unfold before our eyes, and I'm never going to see the fulfillment in my lifetime. And what would help you to continue to persevere in doing good and following and being faithful to God and following his word? It's promises like this. The surety that God by his mighty hand had promised to give a sign that would never be undone, right? And this is what Isaiah is looking forward to in hope. And that's why we see in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, this hope of this mighty God, this time of gloom is eventually going to lift. There's going to be a time where there's no more sadness and all these consequences of sin are going to be done away with. But who is going to bring that? Isaiah 9 starts to reveal who is this promised child? Who is this stump, this holy seed? Well, his saving strength is going to turn this dishonored area of the Galilee into an honored area where he's going to be exalted. And his powerful presence is going to bring this life-giving light. And he's going to multiply blessing and joy for his people. And his dominion is going to be the type that leads people from back-breaking burdens. And his power brings this reward of victory that we don't deserve. We just get to enter into this victory that this king has done for us. And his reign is going to fulfill all this hope for the future. And you're going, who could do all that? And that's when all the text really focuses on, it's the son. It's this child, but who is also our mighty God. And so we see Jesus Christ is the perfect and marvelous fulfillment of this prophecy then. See, how does Christ demonstrate his mighty power that he is in fact the mighty God? Well, him even orchestrating the details of his birth perfectly to show that God himself is the Christ child. See, Jesus, for example, his name, Mary doesn't get to choose the name for Jesus. God chooses the name for Jesus. Tells the angel, this is what the name is. Jesus, because Jesus means God saves. And that's why he's here. Here is God who saves his people from their sins. This is the promised child. See, Jesus is the child born, the son given, who is the mighty God. That is good news that we should respond with great joy like the angels because this child that's born is also Savior, is also God, the Lord. And this Savior to be born of a virgin was exactly what God had promised to Isaiah 7.14. A virgin did conceive. A virgin did give birth. And yet, this child is God with us. And so Jesus demonstrates that he is the mighty God, not just in these details of his birth, right, that are showing and proving the prophecies of Isaiah 700 years earlier, perfectly fulfilled as God had said. But also, like I said, you would have the question, well, prove that you're God. Show and do the God works that only God can do. And we see that from the beginning of Jesus' ministry too. What does Jesus do? He first shows that he has the power to withstand temptation perfectly. And so you and I, when we're tempted, all of us fall short. All of us give in to temptation. None of us is faithful to the Lord and loving the Lord at all times and in all places and all ways. And and we're reminded of that every day when we lean on something other than the Lord, especially in times of trial. And so when Jesus is put where circumstances for us that would be very, very difficult, like being tempted by the devil, when the devil offered him, for example, an instant all the kingdoms of the world... And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone you want to. Jesus is the Almighty God, says, no. And I am showing you that I'm the Son of God by carefully following 
the word of the Lord and obeying my Father's will. And so he refused to offer the offer from Satan and from others throughout his life. And again, it shows no human being can withstand that type of temptation and not fall into sin. And it shows his power. But then what does Jesus do as soon as he proves and shows that he is son of God by withstanding temptation? Where does he begin to go for his ministry? Luke 4 tells us. Jesus returned to Jerusalem, to Galilee, the northern regions. Isaiah said, where is the hope, the power of God, the salvation of God going to first be revealed? The region of Galilee. And where is Jesus going to call his disciples from? First from Galilee, the northern kingdoms. And the hope is dawning for not just them, but for the nations. We're hope, the hope of salvation. See, Jesus withstood all temptation, the temptation to power, the temptation to fame, and instead faithfully follow the Lord. But he also shows his power and his might to heal. This identifies him as the Messiah, as the promised mighty God, his power to heal. So in, in Matthew 9, 7 through 8, we see this example where he departed to his house. The multitude saw it. So he heals this, this man, this paralyzed man, and they glorify God. And what's their conclusion? It's God who had given such power to this man, Jesus. So they attribute this power not to his human ability, but to his divine power, power from God. See, some things are beyond our knowledge and are beyond our skill and beyond our power, but not for the Lord Jesus. And multitudes marvel, but they understood this was no ordinary human that did that. But then also the power to do good. This is what proves that he is the Messiah. He has the power to do good and only good. And how Jesus anointed God, anointed Jesus with the, power, the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We heard again, God with us. That's why he's able to do this. Acts 10 reminds us again that Jesus is, in fact, the mighty God who has power even over the devil and those who he holds in fear of death all their life. But then we would also expect if Jesus is the mighty God, that when he would teach, he would teach mightily, right? He would teach with power. And that's something that everybody notices in his ministry too, right? And the power to teach with authority, like Luke 4.32, they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority, it's like he teaches like with all wisdom, like he's like a, the wonderful counselor who knows all things. And he teaches like he actually knows what's true and real, no matter what other people say. He teaches with authority. See, there, this was a common theme in the Gospels that he taught with authority. And that's exactly what we would expect from the mighty God. And that's exactly the way that Isaiah spoke to Ahaz, the king, saying, I got a message from the king of kings. You're not going to stand if you don't listen to his word, because his word matters. His word has authority. But then he also has the power and the might to forgive, the power and might to forgive. So if you remember when Jesus heals one man, he, he heals him to show that he has the power on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your mat and go to your house. See, it's hard to visibly see when somebody declares you're forgiven to know, well, was they forgiven? I can't see that. 
There's nothing visible to see other than it's a declaration between God and his relationship with somebody else. And so Jesus says, but so that you know I do have the power, that God has the power through Jesus for anybody who has faith in him to forgive, I'm going to do this miracle that you can see to show you that I have that type of power, to authenticate again his message that your sins are forgiven. I want you to think about Christmas season has a way, especially for many of us, to reveal this point that all of us need our sins forgiven. Usually around Christmas time, one, you start to spend more time with family, family who sometimes is closer and knows you better than anybody else. And they have a way of, guess what? Drawing out your heart in ways many times other people don't. And what it shows, again, this Christmas season, I think if you allow it, those trials, those difficulties, maybe with family relationships, siblings, right, others, to really reveal this truth. This is why I need a mighty Savior. I really struggle to control my anger. I really struggle to be patient and long-suffering. I really struggle to do good toward me when other people don't exactly meet my expectations or desires. And I tend to respond sinfully. All of us are. And Christmas season is a wonderful reminder, though, of us why this is why Jesus came, to forgive us of our sin. And again, a lack of unity, a lack of relational harmony, a lack of peace in our homes and our lives provide a great opportunity for us to remember where is peace found. It's not in our families, it's not in our relationships, but it's in the power that the Lord provides. But then he has the power to voluntarily even die for our sins. See, nobody can forgive sins but God alone. But how is that for sin forgiven? It's because there has to be shedding of blood. Without it, there's no forgiveness of sins, yet it's not blood of goats and animals that's going to do it. It's got to be the blood of those who've committed that sin against God, human. And so Jesus came to take on a fully human nature, to die in our place, but he does it voluntarily. He's the one who has total power and wisdom to control all the details of his own death and even has the power to give up his own life. And none of us in this room have that type of power. If you want to right now just say, God, I yield up my spirit and just allow your life to die and go to God. None of us can do that. And that's exactly what Jesus does as the creator of the world. He's like, I created this human nature that I came into and I have the authority to go, now it's done. And he yields up his spirit to the Father. And this is the point that Jesus is making. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself, and I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again, the hope of the resurrection, this command I received from my Father. And so he has the power, even he's hinting at, not only to lay his life down for our sins, but the power to rise up from the dead to show that he has the power to forgive us and to grant new life, eternal life to those who would believe in him. See, he's the one who even sits at the right hand of the mighty God, even now, who reigns and intercedes. But then there's also the, the power to build his church. Power to build his church. See, Jesus says, all this power has, and authority is given to me now for you to go and accomplish the purposes that I'm empowering you to do, to go and make disciples, to share this good news of my mighty salvation, this good news that forgiveness is granted to the nations for those that believe in Jesus Christ. Share this good news. You're my witnesses. See, this message has so much hope for us. Yes, there's consequences. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's times of gloom. But we know that ultimately it's the Lord Jesus who brings a mighty salvation and the peace that we all long for. And so I, I want to close with this last point, which is a, a series of thought-provoking questions to consider from the truths that Jesus is our mighty God. 
is first is do you have a powerful savior do you have a powerful savior see see god tells us that christ is the power of god and the wisdom of god and yet to those who don't know it it looks like foolishness and for some here today as you look at the the prophecy that the way god is going to show his power the way god is going to show his might is through a son being born to a virgin you go that kind of seems strange it kind of seems foolish to me god says that's actually kind of the point no human being would think this way would plan this way it's god's plan it's god's purposes and it shows in fact his true power only god can do this and some of you may have heard this message but have yet today to actually embrace jesus and believe in him as your lord and as your savior and i would encourage you today God gave this prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before his birth so that you would know with confidence Jesus is the only God and the only way that you can be right with him. The only way that you can be forgiven of your sins and saved from the wrath of God to come. And God says you need, you're commanded to repent, to turn to him and to trust him. And like Ahaz, if you do not believe, you will not stand at his judgment. It's sure thing. There is no better time in Christmas season, to put your hope in the real mighty strength, the mighty God. But believers, we have a powerful hope. And are you thinking that way? You have a powerful hope. See, the God of hope can fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him with a hope that overflows. And this is all possible because of the power of the mighty God, the Holy Spirit at work in us. God is reminding us, like in the trials that many of us are going through, all of us have trials of various kinds. Right? There's some who right now are going through trials of loss. Others' trials are tempted even in victories. But the, the point is, all these various trials give us opportunities, one, to reveal where your heart and your hope, your confidence is found. And when you're anxious and when you're nervous and when you're fearful, it's a time to really check and go, where am I thinking security? How do I think this is so mighty? This is so strong to deliver and to help me, right? Relationships, friendships, family, money, wealth, right? These are common temptations we all struggle with to think this is where security is found and to go, okay, what is the anxiety? What is the worry revealing in my heart for what I think is most strong, most secure? You have a powerful hope and amidst pressures and challenges that can move us closer to our God who gives us peace and joy and trials. Do you have a powerful witness? Powerful witness. Part of Jesus' salvation, this mighty God is revealing his power so that you would be transformed and changed to become more like him, to be his witnesses. And so in the book of Isaiah, God often uses disability language. The people uh, have, are blind. They can't see. They can't hear. They don't have hearts that understand. And he uses this language of physical inability to describe an even bigger problem, our spiritual inability. We don't naturally love the Lord and we don't naturally want to please him. And who can change that heart, that sinful heart that I have? Who can change that and make me more like Jesus Christ? It's only the Lord. Only the Lord has the power. And God's plan is to save a people that would change them from the inside, their heart, that would even show then in them being faithful witnesses that see and speak and know and talk about who? This mighty God, this God who saved them. And so all of us as believers are called to be witnesses. And so how powerful is your witness? So you think about the last time that you shared this good news of Jesus Christ with somebody else. It's reflective of what you're thinking is the mightiest thing in your life, is what you speak about and what you point other people to. 
So think about your, your witness, like Acts 1.8 or 433 or the confidence that I have not to be ashamed of the gospel. Finally, do you, uh, one more thing. Do you have a powerful confidence? Powerful content, confidence. You know, Ephesians, Paul's prayer for the believers is that the, as they consider the power of Christ, that Christ raised Jesus up from the dead, that it would give them this wisdom, this knowledge, this revelation of just thinking about how powerful Jesus is and to know that power is at work in you as a believer, to change and to grow, to become more like Jesus. And so do you think of indwelling sin that way, that you have a powerful God who can help you to change and grow? You're not stuck in this thing forever. You can fight it. You can grow in putting sin to death in your life. And God can give you also the power as a believer to reconcile and build stronger and more mature relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Part of God's saving purpose is to mature you and grow you in these ways. And then lastly, do you have a powerful wisdom? A powerful wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, Paul says this, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And so if you look over at your Bible to Isaiah 8.10, what do you see is God's commanding them to do? And then you look at 8.19-20, what is the temptation for the people? To not rely on the Lord's Word, but to look to wisdom and counselors from others, and not based on God's testimony that He had given. And God has given us the greatest testimony, the greatest revelation, the greatest confidence is in the Lord Jesus. And are you focused on what the Lord Jesus commands you to do each day? Are you faithful to his testimony? There's no greater testimony. That's your life, heeding and listening to him. And if I don't, like Ahaz, God says, you surely will not stand. And so our hope must be based on his power and his wisdom, that he gives us everything we need for life and godliness to live to please him. And and so when those anxious moments, when those trials come up in your life, who do you first turn to? Is it first friends, first families, and yet their counsel, if it's not based in God's word, it won't stand. And and so I need to first turn to the wisdom and the instruction of God's word for how I'm going to live and navigate trials in my life. And if I do, you're going to find fullness of joy and at his hand pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your loving kindness and your mercy that you would show your kindness toward us in demonstrating your power and your greatness through the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die on the cross for our sins, that this is the power and the wisdom and the might of God. We thank you for these precious promises and words from the book of Isaiah that, Lord, help us give us confidence in seeing your plan unfold perfectly as your word promises. And that helps us today as a church to take you at your word Even when from our perspective we live, if we try by sight, it looks like we can't ever see how these things are going to work out sometimes in our trials. And yet, amidst these pressures and these temptations, God, you call us to especially be attentive to your testimony, to your word, knowing that you purpose all things and your plans will ultimately be established. And that gives us hope. That gives us incredible confidence, and it helps us, Lord, to be then faithful witnesses as we talk and interact with those in our family and our community, that we want to point people to where the, the greatest source of security and might is found, 
and that's in the Lord Jesus alone. Lord, I do pray for those who are here today who may be filled with anxiety and worry. Lord, who our hearts are shaking because of circumstances in their life, that I pray that this message you would use in their heart to encourage them, uh, that it would reveal what they've been leaning on, what they've been turning to for strength and for might to support them in their life. And I pray they would instead learn to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ today. Lord, help us as a church to be faithful witnesses as we think about the cantata, as we think about the living nativity, as we think about opportunities we have corporately even together to testify, and even those joining church family night who are getting testimony to Jesus' mighty and saving work in their lives. Help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.